Well, here in Acts 23 and 24, we've got uh, Paul's defense, and he says in verse 1, I have lived in all conscience before God until this day, and it's that which I want to talk about. Because when you're on trial, as Paul was, you do search your conscience. And Paul talks here uh, in these speeches from Acts 23 to 26 quite a bit, directly and indirectly, about his conscience. And I, I just want to discuss that, because there are times when things arise in our lives that do make you search yourself and search your own conscience. And those things are from God, and particularly as we encounter again the death of Jesus on the cross for me, we inevitably do think about conscience, about my conscience. When we ask ourselves, what should I be thinking about at the breaking of bread? Should I be thinking about Jesus crucified or making a list, as it were, of my own sin? I, I think that's a bit of a redundant question, because <clears throat> insofar as we are focused upon him there, you naturally have your conscience exercised. That is quite normal. And so, really, to focus upon Jesus dying for me means that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we will examine ourselves at the breaking of bread. Those two things sort of go together. And so he, he says here, though, that he's had a good conscience before God until this day. And yet he also says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 4 that although he has a good conscience, that does not thereby justify me, he says, because it is God who justifies and it is God who judges. It's not that our conscience will stand up on the day of judgment and we will be judged according to it. Jesus says that there is one thing that will judge you at the last day, and that is the word that I have spoken. <clears throat> so then, to say it's okay in my conscience does not necessarily mean a great deal. But obviously in chapter 24, verse 16, he says that Jesus appeared to him and on the way to Damascus and said, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the, the goads. And that phrase, it's hard to kick against the goads, was a, a fairly common phrase in first century literature. And what it meant was, it's hard to live with a bad conscience because you end up hurting yourself uh, more than anything else. And so, what's the resolution of this? He says he had a good conscience, and yet there in uh, chapter 24, 16, he says that, in fact, he had been kicking against the ox goats. You notice there in chapter 24, 16, that he says that he exercises himself to have a conscience empty of offence. He is ascetic, that's the Greek word translated exercise. Um, he's ascetic on himself. He, he has to really practice this. So he's, he's really saying, I try to have a conscience void of offence. Well, I wonder whether when Paul says here in 23 verse 1, I've always had a good conscience before God, whether this isn't Paul maybe in weakness, rather too self-justifying. And of course he goes on, <clears throat> when Ananias says, smite him, Paul says, verse 3, and God shall smite you, you whited wall, because you're commanding for me to be smitten contrary to the law and then they say do you revile God's high priest and he realises he's spoken too quickly in hot blood and he tries to get himself out of it and he rather succeeds I think um, <clears throat> he says I didn't know verse 5 that he was the high priest 
And that word really means to see. And it could be that Paul was partially sighted, that he had eyesight problems, which is why he, he talks about, you see what a large letter I have written to you, you see what big letters I'm writing with my own hand. Or he says to the Galatians, you would have been willing to pluck out your own eyes and give them to me, implying that he did have an eyesight problem. So he was sort of saying, well, I, I didn't realize the person speaking was a high priest because, you know, I'm a bit blind. But, of course, this word for seeing or knowing uh, was uh, sort of a, had a double meaning. He could be saying, <clears throat> I don't recognize this guy as the high priest, because for me, Jesus, and not Ananias, is the high priest. But he realizes, I think, that he's got himself in a difficulty, and so he shouts out, I'm a Pharisee, and all this argument's just because I'm a Pharisee. Well, he wasn't really a Pharisee anymore, but he... he tries to divide his opposition by saying, well, it's all an argument about the resurrection. And his little, <clears throat> very hastily thought-up plot works out very well, because they have this big argument then amongst themselves, just as I think he, he hoped they would, and he kind of gets ignored. So maybe this is not Paul at his best. <clears throat> this is one of those flecks of pride and hot blood that you see in Paul at different times, and even in his writing you, you see it coming through. Now, <clears throat> in that case then, we still have this problem, because he kicked against the, the, the pricks, the goads, and yet he says, I always had a good conscience. Now what are we to make of that? I'm going to suggest later there's another way to look at kicking against the... Uh, the goads, but we'll come to that later. But it's the same problem you have when you read what are called the last words of David. Well, David's very positive there about himself. He says that he has uh, lived in the light before God, that he has held himself upright before God. He talks <coughs> very positively about his own uh, experience with, with God and that he has been upright before God. And yet you think, well, David, but you did so many wrong things. You, you did the thing with Bathsheba, you murdered Uriah, and plenty of other things. And in the, in the Psalms, he talks about, in the time before he repented about Bathsheba, about how he, his whole body cried out within him in bad conscience about what he had done. So what are we to make of this? It's the same problem with David talking at the end of his life about how he has been so upright before God when he clearly hadn't been, and <clears throat> Paul here talking about how he'd had a good conscience before God when he clearly had not. Now, the answer may be, in what is written to the Hebrews, and it could have been Paul writing that, that the conscience is cleansed in Christ. But what does that mean? that our conscience is washed with pure water. How is the conscience cleansed? It could be that the idea is that our consciousness of sin, of our own sin, is in that sense washed and purged. It's not that you don't remember your sin, but you have no bad conscience about it, because it really has been dealt with. That's what David came to realize over, David, over his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah and all that. And I think that's what Paul came to realize. Now, that would really be then a great encouragement to us. We who know that we have sinned, and yet we have this question, well, am I really forgiven? 
And of course, the whole point of being here at the breaking of bread is to remind ourselves, it's to in fact to celebrate the fact that we are totally forgiven. And that's hard work to believe that. <clears throat> that is not as simple as shrugging your shoulders and taking the wine and thinking, well, yep, I'm forgiven, yeah, well, that's pretty cool. Okay, and then we go back into the sort of the mediocrity of, uh, of our spiritual lives. If we are really forgiven, and really that forgiveness is felt by us, then our conscience in that sense is cleansed, and we are no longer, we are no longer uh, in a position where we, we worry about past sin. Really, we have become new creatures, and all the old has passed away. Um, yeah, this is a, a wonderful encouragement, really, uh, to, to us who, who struggle, I guess, with this issue of, of am I really forgiven? <clears throat> and yet, there remains the possibility that Paul, in fact, realized he'd spoken too quickly, which is why he says in chapter 24, 16, that I exercise myself. I really try to have a good conscience. That's a bit different saying I try to have a good conscience to saying that I, uh, I, I have or I always had a good conscience. But it's possible, you know, that he did. It's possible, and here we get another lesson for ourselves, it's, it's possible that all that he did in persecuting the Christians was in fact done in, in genuine uh, sincerity in a sense because in 1 Timothy 1.13 he says that he was forgiven for persecuting the church because he says I acted ignorantly in unbelief uh, and that, uh, that must be factored in 1 Timothy 1.13 has got to be factored into all this I did it ignorantly in unbelief and the point was that as soon as he realised what he'd been doing, he immediately repented. Maybe he really did have this good conscience because he immediately repented. And now the lesson to us is to immediately repent. As soon as we realise something is wrong, to immediately repent and put ourselves right again with God. Whether you're standing at a bus stop, whether you're driving your car, whatever you're doing, to, as Paul says, exercise yourself, to have that conscience that's empty of offence toward God. Now that, I, I think, is the, is the way to go. And we're so mixed up as, as people. Um, there's a guy, a theologian, Kirsten Stendhal, who wrote quite a bit about this issue of Paul's conscience, and he makes some interesting points. One of them was that he, he said that we tend to want to kind of insert our conscience into the conscience of Paul. Because we struggle with conscience issues, we therefore tend to like to, to, to think that, well, Paul actually had the same problem. And he, he talks uh, about the, uh, the introspective conscience of the West, and his point is that modern modern man, and the Western man in particular, is increasingly mixed up, that the West is a bunch of mixed up kids, and that we struggle with our conscience about this or about that, 
in a way that people of previous generations and people in other cultures did not do. That they lived a far simpler life psychologically than what we live today. And that is kind of uh, believable. I can go with him on that point. And his take is that, sure, Paul had an absolutely wonderful conscience, even when he was doing the wrong thing. Oh, yeah, he understood he did the wrong thing, that, that what he was doing wasn't right, so he repented straight away and just carried on and, and, and lived in good conscience before God with that new understanding of God that he had. If that is the case, well, we need to go back to that, that way of living. Uh, in, in, in spiritual terms and psychological terms, to s- simply say, look, I've, I have a heart for God, and I have sold myself for him and for his son, and whatever I see in his word, whatever he reveals to me, I will, I will do. Of course, for us who are literate, for us who can hyper-analyze the text of scripture, it's true, the introspective conscience of the West that uh, Stendhal talks about, that for us it becomes more difficult because we think, eh, well, should I be doing this or should I be doing that? And whilst that is true, I also think that if you have a basic heart for God, actually you don't struggle over issues uh, of conscience to that extent because really you intuitively know that this is wrong or that is wrong, just as a child actually does. And that is, uh, I think, the, the case, or should be the case, with us. So this is sort of an appeal, therefore, to a, a simpler life. Read the scriptures daily. Don't worry about hyper-analyzing the text. I, I'm not as, as you know, I'd be the last person to uh, encourage us just to be simplistic. Um, but just simply get on with arranging and rearranging your life in accordance with what you see there in Scripture, and particularly what you perceive would be the position of Jesus as he stands in in your shoes in, in life. Now, it was only oxen that needed to have goads, and when Jesus says to to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. The suggestion is, then, that Paul is is an ox. Of all the animals, he's an ox. And he refers to himself in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, as an ox that's treading out the corn. And when he says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, at the end of his life, that I've run a good uh, race and I'm finishing the course, it's usually assumed that that's an allusion to the Olympic runner. And it may be, but apparently it's also a phrase used about an oxen ploughing his furrow to the end of the field. I've finished my furrow. I've finished my course. As if he felt that, well, I stopped kicking against the pricks and I ploughed a straight furrow. Now, the ox was the prized possession of poor peasant farmers. That was the peasant farmer's great sort of right hand and, and the, the animal they in fact loved. And that's why the Old Testament talks about how the ox knows his owner. There's this uh, friendliness, if you like, between the ox and his owner. And it's a lovely illusion, really, because Jesus is really saying, look, Paul, you are all I have. And in a sense, we are all that God has on this earth to do his work. 
we may assume that actually if we mess up, he will, like with Esther, raise salvation another way for other people. But I don't think so. I think that, in line with the parable, the master has given all his wealth, all of it, into the hands of his servants, and he's gone. And he says, look, it's up to you now. You do your thing. So God has, as again, as Paul says, he has entrusted the gospel to us. There's an entrusting that's gone on there. And he's therefore put all his hopes in us. And we are his beloved ox, doing his work, plowing his field to the end. And although he doesn't talk about oxen, David, when he talks uh, about his... uh, lessons he learned after the sin with Bathsheba, or more to the point, his receipt of forgiveness. He says, don't be like the the horse or the mule that need to be kept in line by a bit in the mouth, yanked into into the right position, etc. He's saying, you know, don't be like that. And it's a bit the same here. Don't continually push against those those prods, those uh, pricks, those goads intuitively go God's way. And this is, of course, the the leading of the Spirit, which does not exclude being led by God's Word, but the Spirit of God does not only work through the Bible. God is working in our lives so that we will do His work and plough that straight furrow for Him. And we don't want to be in a position where all the time we're having to be yanked into place. But we love Him, and there is an intuition between a, a man and his ox, as there is between us and and the Lord Jesus, who is using us in love to, to do his work. Now, I said that there is a, another way to read this. Those verses are, I've quoted so far in this talk, you could almost put in two camps, the, the verses which imply that yes, Paul really did have a good conscience, and then the others that say no, he didn't, and uh, it's just that the conscience was cleansed in Christ. The whole thing is somewhat difficult. So we come back to 24.16, to it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Does this actually mean that he had a bad conscience? that somehow in the lead-up to the Damascus Road, he had all these pricks of conscience that he had ignored and that pained him. Well, it doesn't have to mean that. Forget about conscience uh, and the conscience interpretation. Jesus could simply be saying, Paul, I have a hand on you, and you can kick against the, the goads, but... You're obviously pretty stupid if you're going to do that. You're going to live a very painful life. I am leading you in a certain way. Now, the ox ends up going the way that the master wants it to go. It may kick against the goads, but it soon realizes that if I keep doing this, I'm going to pierce myself through. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to bleed to death. And so eventually it goes its own way. It could be that Jesus is really saying, Paul, I have a hold on you, and don't kick against the goads, just go my way. Forgetting about conscience, it could be more predestination, if you like, rather than conscience, that Jesus is saying, look, Paul, I am leading you in a way, 
and just like the ox might kick a bit against it, but eventually it has no option really but to go that way, so that is the way you are going to go. And that sort of predestination, that, that bigger hand in our life, over and above our own free will, Paul talks about that in Romans. And he doesn't just sort of start writing Romans 8 and think, ah oh, yeah, well I'll write to them a little bit about predestination, and etc., he writes about predestination there in the context of trying to persuade them that the gospel is about grace, that we're saved by grace. And his whole point is that this bigger aspect of our lives, this bigger hand in our lives, is there uh, from God to show us his grace. That it cannot be by works that somebody with unaided free will, sits down, looks at a Bible and says, OK, I, I understand this, I believe this, and I shall be obedient. No one's saying that we should not do that. But that is a response to grace. But the, the grace comes first, and that is from God. There is this bigger hand in human life, in, in spiritual life. And in a sense, this is how I understand Romans, that if you're called by God then you are chosen, and you are predestinated, and you will be there. Of course, you don't have to be there, because you can really fight against it, and you can kick, kick, kick against the, the goads until you do yourself to death. If you really don't want to be in the kingdom, I suppose you shall not be there. But you've got to fight against it as strongly as an ox kicks against a goad until he pierces himself to death. That doesn't normally happen with oxen. The fact is that you and I really will be saved, that we are on the path to God's kingdom, and we will be there. This is amazing, but it is so. And so, <clears throat> that perhaps is the way that I prefer to take it, but it is a radical interpretation, because it means that if I have been called, which we have been, if you've heard the gospel, you have been called, and you have come to baptism and you are in Christ, then, believe it or not, we will be saved. It's almost too good news. When Paul says to Timothy that there are those who have pierced themselves through with many sorrows by trying to be rich uh, and forgetting about their conscience towards God, I think that he may have this in mind, that those people, believe it or not, were like the oxen that kicked against the goad, and could pierce himself through to death. And yet, of course, it's the same idea as the piercing of Jesus. That it's a piercing either way. We either die with him, or we basically kill ourselves, by piercing ourselves through with many sorrows. And so, it's almost too good news to believe that we have been picked up by God, by the Lord Jesus, to be his animal, his beloved ox, all that he has to do his work. And yes, there are goads, there are pricks in our sides to keep us in the way. But unless you really do not want to be in the kingdom, you will be there and you will follow that way. And that really is the good news of the cross. <laughs>